Welcome to the Christian History Podcast, Chapter 2, Episode 72. Last week, I covered the land of Goshen, the place to which Jacob and his family relocated at the end of Genesis. I also summarized Genesis chapters 46 through 49. If you missed that episode, you should go back and give it a listen. In the summary of chapter 49, we run across a place called Sidon, the subject of this week's episode. So let's get started. Sidon is located in the modern country of Lebanon, where it is currently the third largest city, behind Beirut and Tripoli, and no, not the Tripoli in Libya. Like was mentioned in Genesis, it's on the coast, and therefore a port city. It's also almost equidistant between Beirut and Tyre, about 25 miles or 40 kilometers north of Tyre, and the same distance south of Beirut. In Arabic, its name means fishery, which given its location and historical economy, makes perfect sense. In Genesis chapter 10, aka the Table of Nations, the man named Sidon was the oldest son of Canaan, and therefore the great-grandson of Noah. It's probably a safe assumption that this is the biblical origin of the name. It was not mentioned again until Genesis chapter 49, which of course is why I'm covering it today. As I told in the last episode, Jacob bestows the city to his son Zebulun in that passage. Well, as much as he could bestow any of the land, especially while living in Egypt. His descendants would end up fighting the other regional groups for control just as they had to for control of all of the region. In Joshua, in both chapters 11 and 19, Sidon is mentioned as a great city, probably Phoenician. Its greatness is thought to have stemmed from its use as a commercial center, owing to its access to the coast. In the first chapter of Judges, we learn that the tribe of Asher failed to drive the Canaanites from Sidon along with other cities in the same general area, such as Aleb, Akzib, Helba, Akfakik, and Rehob. And since they didn't drive out the residents, their tribe was forced to dwell with the Canaanites. Later in the same book, in chapter 10, the residents of Sidon, probably Canaanites, oppressed the Israelites. In this passage also shows that the areas bestowed by Jacob were somewhat fluid, but keep in mind that all Jacob promised Zebulun was that the border of his territory would be at Sidon. And the text doesn't say who would get the other side of that border, or if it were to remain unconquered. While David was king, in Isaiah chapter 23, we read of the so-called burden of Tyre, and this chapter yields some insight into not only Tyre, but also Sidon. Apparently, and probably true given the proximity, the fate of both cities were very intertwined. In this passage, we can find a reference to the merchants of Sidon, giving support to the belief that it was a major commercial center. But, as you read further into the paragraphs, you can begin to see that the city of Sidon experiences a decline while the prospects of Tyre get better, wax and wane, all in balance. Then, King Solomon apparently counted among his many wives at least one from Sidon, as seen in 1 Kings chapter 11. 
and, as found in the same chapter, his family took to worshipping Ashtoreth, a Scythian goddess. In one note, the people of Sidon are sometimes called Scythian, and other times called Sidonese. I'm going with Sidonese, as I'm less likely to butcher it. Back to the Bible. Then there is the story of Jezebel, who, as the daughter of Ethbal I of Sidon, was quite naturally a Sidonese princess. In 1 Kings chapter 16, we learn of how King Ahab of Israel married her and began to worship her god Baal. I'll get to how that ended at some point in the future. The place was also mentioned in several books of the prophets, but the context usually followed one of a couple of themes. Jeremiah, in his chapters 25, 27, and 47, included the city in a list of the cities of the region. So, nothing exceedingly remarkable nor noteworthy here, except the list tend to prove that it was large and influential enough to bear a mention. That, and of course, that it did really exist. Not that there was ever any question about that. In Ezekiel chapter 27, and Joel chapter 3. It was paired with Tyre. The same is true in Ezekiel chapter 28, where the two cities were condemned by God, and the passage is worthy of a quote. From the New Revised Standard Version, The word of the Lord came to me, meaning the prophet Ezekiel. Mortal, set your face towards Sidon, and prophesy against it, and say, Thus says the Lord God, I am against you, O Sidon, and I will gain glory in your midst. They shall know that I am the Lord when I execute judgments in it and manifest my holiness in it. For I will send pestilence into it and bloodshed into its streets, and the dead shall fall in its midst by the sword that is against it on every side. And they shall know that I am the Lord. The house of Israel shall no longer find a pricking briar or piercing thorn among all their neighbors who have treated them with contempt. And they shall know that I am the Lord God. End quote. Now, it's probably a pretty safe assumption that Ezekiel didn't like the Sidonese. He does the same in Ezekiel chapter 32, but this time pairs the city with the country of Egypt, condemning them both to destruction. Now, not all of the prophets treated the city with such scorn. Elijah rested there and performed miracles from chapter 1 of 1 Kings. And bear with me, as it's a little lengthy, but gives insight into both Elijah and the town. Then the word of the Lord came to him, saying, Go to Zarephath, which belongs to Sidon, and live there, for I have commanded a widow there to feed you. So he set out for Zarephath. And when he came to the gate of the town, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and said, Bring me a little water in a vessel, so that I may drink. As she was going to bring it, he called to her and said, Bring me a morsel of bread in your hand. But she said, As the Lord your God lives, I have nothing baked, only a handful of meal in a jar, and a little oil in a jug. And I am now gathering a couple of sticks, so that I may go home and prepare it for myself and my son, that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, Do not be afraid. Go and do as you have said, 
but first make me a little cake of it and bring it to me, and afterwards make something for yourself and your son. For thus says the Lord the God of Israel, The jar of meal will not be emptied, and the jug of oil will not fail until the day that the Lord sends rain onto the earth. She went and did as Elijah said, so that she as well as he and her household ate for many days. The jar of meal was not emptied, neither did the jug of oil fail, according to the word of the Lord that he spoke by Elijah. After this, the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became ill. His illness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. She then said to Elijah, What have you against me, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my sin to remembrance, and to cause the death of my son. But he said to her, Give me your son. He took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper chamber where he was lodging, and laid him on his own bed. He cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, have you brought calamity even upon the widow with whom I am staying by killing her son? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times, and cried out to the Lord, O Lord my God, let this child's life come into him again. The Lord listened to the voice of Elijah. The life of the child came into him again, and he revived. Elijah took the child, brought him down from the upper chamber into the house, and gave him to his mother. Then Elijah said, See, your son is alive. So the woman said to Elijah, Now I know that you are a man of God, and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. End quote. Now, before you discard the story, keep in mind that it was one of the relatively few out of the many from the Old Testament that was referenced by Jesus himself, in this case in Luke chapter 4. And while I'm talking about God's Son, it's worth noting that he visited Sidon, as seen in both Matthew chapter 15 and Mark chapter 7. And to be accurate, some translations of Mark 7 listed only that he visited Tyre, but you will find Sidon in the footnotes. And people came from Sidon to hear him preach, as seen in Mark chapter 3 and Luke chapter 6. Finally, Jesus wasn't the only person in the New Testament to mention the city. His cousin, John, as in the Baptist, also spoke of the city. And carrying on what was by then an old tradition, he paired it with Tyre. This had to be tiring for the Sidonese to not have a true individual city identity. Anyway, John said that the two cities weren't to suffer the same fate as some others of the region. To quote, and as found in Matthew chapter 11, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? No. You will be brought down to Hades. For if the deeds of power done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that on the day of judgment, it will be more tolerable for the land of Sodom than for you." End quote. And, apparently, 
Sidon and Tyre had recovered somewhat from the woes bestowed upon them by Ezekiel. In Acts chapter 27, we see that it was from the port of Sidon that Paul sailed towards Rome, with a stop in Myra, a city in Lycia, which was in Anatolia and therefore places it in the modern country of Turkey. Of course, along the way, the ship wrecked on the shores of the island of Malta, but I'll get to that later. Legend also has it that the last time Saul turned Paul met Peter, the original rock, was in Sidon at a place that has since become St. Nicholas Cathedral. But I searched high and low for some extensive evidence of this, and what I found was rather scant, so take it with a grain of salt. And that's the Sidon of the Bible, but what about the outside historic record? It is believed that Sidon, in the region surrounding it, has been inhabited for many thousands of years. Excavations of the area have revealed artifacts, believed to date to the Ashleyan period, which was around at least 100,000 years BC. Are you ready for the disclaimer? Their dates, meaning the researchers' dates, not mine. These artifacts are so old that they predate the introduction of ceramics to the area and consist mostly of flint tools. Not only smaller artifacts like the tips of arrows, but also small axes and chisels. At one time, the artifacts were located at the American University in Beirut, but during the prolonged modern conflicts, which I'll get to later, they have gone missing. A different excavation in the region has uncovered artifacts, again, pre-pottery and mostly flint, and these date to the Neolithic period, so between 15,000 and 3,000 BC. Same disclaimer as just a minute ago. Later, the record indicated there was an important Phoenician economic center, and may have been the oldest of such cities. Why was it important? Well, the same reason as most of the previously covered cities, namely trade. And the slow to develop trans-Mediterranean routes linked it with other similar cities across the region. In fact, none other than Homer, the ancient Greek poet, noted both its glass production as well as embroidery that originated in the area. In fact, it seems that the production of glass in the city would become its largest industry during the Phoenician era, which overall was between the 16th and 5th centuries BC, so during the period of Genesis. And during this time, there was the production of purple dye. More on that in a bit. It was residents from Sidon that were believed to have founded the more well-known city of Tyre, Tyre would slowly grow into a city that would eclipse its big sister, just as Isaiah recorded. And this is just one of many, many examples of how the history found in the Bible is completely supported by the outside record. As for the purple dye sourced in the region, I covered this more in depth when I worked through the history of the Canaanites, beginning in chapter 2, episode 23, and ending in chapter 2, episode 30. It's worth going back and giving it a listen if you missed it. But as a refresher, this purple dye is called Mirex and is sourced from a carnivorous marine mollusk, more commonly known as rock snails. The name Mirex has been around forever, 
as evidenced by none other than Aristotle calling it the same name. And the dye? Well, it's sometimes called Tyrian purple, or less specifically, royal purple. Why royal purple? Well, the dye was used in royal robes, other kinds of special ceremonial or ritual garments, and garments indicating high rank, and usually only for such purposes, as it was extremely costly to produce. Also interesting, and part of the explanation of why it was so expensive, was the way it was produced. The small snail shell, say that three times, was between about 2 and 4 inches or 4 and 10 centimeters long, and to produce it, the shell was broken and the pigment manually extracted. And each snail yielded only a little dye, so very labor-intensive, and very bad if you were a rock snail, as many snails had to be sacrificed for a productive amount of dye. Some believe that the dye was also used in the clothing of the high priest at the ancient temple in Jerusalem, but not everyone, meaning people who think about such things, agrees with the theory. Finally, occasionally, it's used in the Jewish religion today, in the ritual fringes on four-cornered garments. And, with that little sidebar done, back to the history of Sidon. Fast forward to the year 1855, and that would be A.D. In that year, the sarcophagus of King Eshmunazar II was discovered. The king was the leader of the Sidonese, sometime in the 6th century BC. And a few interesting things about the sarcophagus. First, it was likely created in Egypt, and this is believed because its material appears to be from amphibolite that was sourced in the Wadi Hammamat, and this alone tends to show that the two societies were linked somehow. And the second interesting thing is that the artifact bears an inscription, one that was written in Phoenician, and this makes it the first such find discovered in the Phoenician language. The Phoenician inscription on it calls him, meaning the king, the king of the Sidians, and that his mother was a priestess of Ashtart, the goddess of the Sidians. Curiously, she, meaning the priestess, is referred to as Ashtart Shem Baal, meaning Ashtart, the name of the Lord. Now this title is also found in Ugaritic text, showing some sort of connection between those two societies too. The inscription also gives some insight into their religion, as it mentions their gods Eshmun and Baal Sidon, aka the Lord of Sidon. These are further mentioned as the chief gods of the Sidonese. As for the king Eshmunazar II, he was a Phoenician king of Sidon and the son of King Tabnit. And Tabnit may, and this is just a may, be one and the same as the king known by the Greeks as Tennis, who fought with the Trojans in their war with the Greeks, aka the Trojan War. He was also allegedly slain by none other than Achilles. The sarcophagus now resides in the Louvre, and if you're ever in Paris and decide to visit the Louvre, my advice is to skip the long lines for a passing glimpse of the surprisingly small Mona Lisa and head for the antiquities section. Now, I recognize that you're probably listening to this podcast because you're a bit of a history nerd like me. 
And how many times have I referenced an artifact that's now found in the Louvre? I've lost count. But then again, it's just my opinion, and the gaze put on her by Leonardo is a sight to be seen. Anyway, in the BC eras, the city of Sidon was constantly changing hands, having been conquered by the Assyrians, Babylonians, Egyptians, Persians, Greeks, and ultimately the Romans. Such is the fate of a vital port city. And, in the conflux of the Bible and general history, and since it was in his territory when under Roman rule, even Herod the Great visited Sidon. Fast forwarding a few centuries, as you would suspect, the city was overtaken by Arab Islamists, and in their case, this occurred in 636 AD. They controlled the city until the year 1110, specifically on the 4th of December, when Sidon was captured by the Crusaders. The conquerors were led by King Baldwin I of Jerusalem and King Sigrid also I of Norway. While under Western control, it was governed by what was called the Lordship of Sidon under the administration of the Kingdom of Jerusalem. But, like other cities in the region, it was recaptured by the Islamists, specifically by Saladin in 1187. Of course, there were multiple crusades, and as such, it was recaptured by German crusaders in 1197, who renewed Christian control. And during this period of Christian control, the castle of St. Louis was built by the crusaders, it was constructed on top of the remains of a fortress built by the Fatima Caliph al-Muiz. Its ruins remain to this day. The Christian control lasted for about half a century until it was finally overtaken and destroyed by the Saracens in 1249. Eleven years later, in 1260, it was again sacked, this time by Mongol invaders. Maybe this is what Ezekiel foresaw. Either way, it surely wasn't a pleasant time to live there. Sidon eventually came to be controlled by the Ottoman Turks in the 16th century, and with their control once again, it became a major economic center. And it remained under Turkish control until their defeat by the Allies in World War I, when it fell to the French and became part of their mandated areas. After World War I, and as part of the French mandate, it became known as Lebanon. And then, in the 1920s, the French government created a constitutional republic known, unsurprisingly, as the Lebanese Republic, which, believe it or not, was a mostly Christian country, but with a significant Muslim population, both Shia and Sunni. Sidon was located in this republic. But don't let the name Republic fool you too much. It was still a French colony. Of course, then came World War II, and the fall of France to the German nationals, known better as the Nazis. And with that fall, Lebanon, and therefore Sidon, came under Axis control, ruled by Vichy French surrogates. During the war, and as part of their greater war effort, the British invaded Syria and Lebanon, and the Free French, since they were allied with the Brits, eventually agreed to recognize Lebanese independence, and all was well. Well, actually no. Long story a little longer, Lebanon participated in the Arab invasions of Israel, 
and with the eventual Israeli victories, over 100,000 Palestinian refugees fled to Lebanon, many settling in the area in and around Sidon, which led to internal tensions and that begat a civil war that began, well, reached full scale in 1975. During the war, the country was invaded by the Syrians and then the Israelis. The Israelis sieged Beirut, and this led to a multinational peacekeeping force consisting of mostly Americans, French, and Italians arriving in 1982. The peacekeeping force withdrew in 1984 after a terrible bomb attack that killed over 300 of the peacekeepers, including 220 U.S. Marines. The Civil War essentially lasted until 1990, but the tensions remained long afterwards. Israeli forces slowly withdrew, and their last troops went home in the year 2000. The Syrians stayed for another five years, finally departing in 2005. But the tensions from the Lebanese Civil War, as well as refugees and spillover from neighboring Syria's ongoing conflict, continue to hamper peace and reconstruction efforts in Lebanon. Backing up before wrapping up, in the year 1900, Sidon had only 10,000 residents. Over the next 100 years, the population increased to 65,000 in the city and about 200,000 in the surrounding metropolitan area. Finally, to this day, Sidon remains the home to a Greek Melikite Catholic Archbishop. In fact, it has been home to a significant Christian population nearly since the founding of the religion. And that's the thought I'll end this episode on. Join me next week when I'll summarize chapter 50, the last chapter of the first book of the Bible. And with that, I'll also provide a summary of the entire book, as best as I can in the little time that I have. You don't want to miss it. Comments and questions can be sent to comments at christianhistorypodcast.com. As always, you can find information about the podcast on the internet at christianhistorypodcast.com. This week, I hope you will go to iTunes or wherever you receive the podcast from and leave a positive review. For those of you that have, you are helping others to find the podcast. You can also find the Facebook page by searching the phrase Christian History Podcast as three separate words. Once there, be sure to like the page. And finally, if you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to subscribe. That way you don't miss an episode and you get them as soon as they are released. Thanks for listening and have a great week.